Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm here with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. Sarah, we have almost made it to the end of the year. We can only hope, really, I I suppose, that 2022 proves a little less eventful. Although I wouldn't be too confident predicting that right now, would you? No, and we're set for an interesting ride in 2022 as well. But what about you? Have you made any resolutions for this year? Well, trying to get more sleep is basically my general resolution. And actually, to spend a bit more time by the sea and to stop the surfboard gathering dust. How about you? Well, I did decide that this year I'm going to try and stop worrying about things I can't control because, frankly, it's exhausting. But it is the time of year for looking ahead, so having a look at what the new year holds. So in this episode of the podcast, we'll be talking to the experts around HL about what the future has in store for them. In an episode we're calling the weather forecast. Whether or not things will happen. I see what you did there, Sarah. So first up, we've got Sophie Lund-Yates, our senior equity analyst, who'll be taking us through five shares to watch in the coming year. Hi there, Sophie. Hi, both. And can I just say, I truly can't believe we're discussing next year already. But the market waits for absolutely no one. So um, I'll be having a chat through some of the shares I think could stand to benefit next year, as you've just said. It definitely hasn't been the easiest task, given how much uncertainty is still lingering at the moment. Plus, Helen Morrissey, our senior pensions analyst, will take us through what 2022 will bring for pensions. Hi, Helen. Is it going to be another big year for pensions? It's always a pretty big year for pensions. And this year, we're going to see more developments on social care too for people to get their heads around. It always sounds like yeah, a nightmare to think about when you're thinking about social care. And we're also going to be speaking to Nathan Long, who's our senior policy analyst, about some of the policy developments that will hit investors this year. Hi, Nathan. Hi, yeah, we're expecting some announcements around the participation of retail investors in new stock market flotations to be something to keep an eye out for the new year. So those IPOs, those new flotations, ones to watch. Thanks, Nathan. Looking forward to hearing all about that. And we're also joined by Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research. She'll be running through five funds to watch. Plus, we'll have our quiz. And Susanna's been digging out some of the lesser known financial stories of the year to catch me out as usual. I hope so, and I can't wait. But first, we're going to look at some of the major trends affecting the markets as we head into 2022. And there are quite a few, Sarah, aren't there? Yes, and it's not just the markets. So some of these things are going to end up impacting our pockets too. A combination of supply chain problems and energy price rises. I mean, we're starting the year with a really major income squeeze. So the jury's still out on what's going to happen next. The Bank of England's confident that this is like a temporary blip, which it says it'll just calm down naturally. So it thinks higher energy prices will absorb our cash, so we'll have less to spend on other things. And at the same time, it expects some of the supply chain problems to unwind. And then as we go into the spring and things like, you know, demand for energy drops, it's expecting these prices to fall back too. But it depends on an awful lot of unknowns, like the impact of the new strain, for example, on supply chains. Absolutely. Gaps on shelves have become a real regular occurrence with frozen turkeys and sparkling water, the items recently in short supply. I mean, supply chains all over the world have snarled up as we've recovered, of course, from the initial shock of the coronavirus pandemic. And that's left businesses really unable to get a ready supply of goods, which has pushed up prices. And the computer chip shortage really does show little sign of coming to an end 
anytime soon. We bought fewer cars and more laptops, of course, when lockdowns hit and supply chains adjusted to reflect this. But now people want cars again and there certainly aren't enough chips to go round. And that sent prices soaring and that's put pressure on everything from cars to gaming consoles. The other issues affecting supply chains are the labour shortages and these are more acute in some countries than others. Here in the UK, the HGV driver shortage is a particularly thorny issue, partly because so many European drivers returned home during the pandemic following the Brexit vote, of course. And visa restrictions mean it's now harder to recruit from abroad. What are the indications for retail sales? Because they're a key measure of economic health too, aren't they? Yeah, they are an indicator of consumer confidence. I mean, if people feel their personal financial situation is relatively rosy, they'll be more likely to splash their cash in the shops. When measured across the economy as a whole, retail sales really can help build a clearer picture of the general state of the country's household finances. And what's more, I think retail sales do tell us something about the health of businesses because it's our spending that makes up company revenues and eventually profits. According to the ONS, that's the Office for National Statistics, retail sales volumes are slightly higher than their pre-coronavirus levels, reflecting a real recovery in spending across many major categories. In particular, clothing sales, which have been depressed for quite a while, as we've had fewer occasions to splurge out for a nice outfit, have almost completely recovered. Now, some of this might have been early Christmas shopping and revamping of work wardrobes as people return to the office, so some of the higher sales may come out in the wash, especially if consumer confidence takes a knock from the trajectory of the virus. Yes, and that is a worry because there's every sign that our incomes will be stretched through much of 2022. And one of the biggest issues is tax, isn't it, Sarah, and the rise in national insurance. Yes, the rise in national insurance from April is going to cause a fair amount of pain. The increase, for example, will see somebody who earns £50,000 pay about £505 more a year. Um, There's also the dividend tax rise, which is going to affect people with investment portfolios outside ISAs and also people who work for themselves and pay themselves in dividends. There's been some talk about potential income tax cuts in 2023 and beyond, but even if that comes to fruition, it's not going to ease the pressure for next year. The other thing to bear in mind was the freezing of the tax threshold in the budget in March, which as people's pay rises over time is going to push more and more people into paying higher rates of tax. Of course, pensioners are free from that higher national insurance bill until the introduction of the health and social care levy in 2023. But of course, that doesn't mean they're going to be untouched by the change coming uh, this year. So let me bring in Helen Morrissey, a senior pensions analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Helen, what do you think the biggest issues affecting pensioners are as we head into 2022? Thanks, Susanna. So the state pension, most notably how much it's going to increase by next year, has been a big issue that is going to loom over pensioners. So as you may know, the state pension is increased every year by what is known as a triple lock. Now, this promises to increase the state pension by whatever is the biggest of 2.5% earnings or CPI inflation. Now this year was interesting because the end of furlough massively distorted earnings data and if that had been used pensioners would have been in line for a bumper rise. However this wasn't seen as fair to the working population and so the decision was taken to suspend the triple lock for one year and increase the state pension by CPI inflation instead. So Helen, why do you think this is such an issue? It has hit the headlines. 
At the time the decision was taken, CPI inflation was at 3.1%. And so this is what pensioners are going to get. But we've since seen inflation massively increase and it's expected to be even higher next year. So it may then fall back reasonably quickly, but we just don't know. And given that we're also expecting huge increases in things like heating bills, the increase in the state pension is unlikely to go very far in helping pensioners. And we could see more of them struggling to make ends meet over the coming months. So we've seen some fiery debates in the Commons in recent weeks about this, with the government under pressure to restore the triple lock and to give pensioners a bigger increase next year. On these price rises, isn't it a problem for everyone? Because bills are on the rise for all of us, aren't they? Yes, you're absolutely right. We are all being hit by rising bills over the coming months. Changes to social care have also been proving highly controversial, haven't they, Helen? They sure have. So under the current system, anyone with assets of more than £23,250 has to pay for their care. Now, these costs can run into many thousands of pounds a year and cause real financial stress to families as no one knows how long someone will need care for or how much care they will need. It's an issue that successive governments have kicked into the long grass. And I think we were despairing of anybody really taking it on. But then in September, the government announced its social care plan. Now, this effectively raised the floor so anyone with assets up to £100,000 could get help paying for care. It also placed a cap on the amount people would pay in their personal care costs in their lifetime. People still have to find the money to pay for their accommodation costs, things like rent and bills, and these can also be expensive, but this system looked much better than the current system. However, in recent weeks, the government snuck out a paper which effectively said that only the contributions that the individual makes to their personal care costs will count towards the cap. Now, what this means is that if you're somebody getting government help with your care costs, then that government help won't count towards the cap. So this has come as a bit of a blow and it means that people with lower levels of assets will take longer to reach this cap and will have to spend a higher proportion of their assets to do so. So we expect there to be a bit of a north-south divide here, given that the average house prices in the north are much lower. So this change, which promised so much, in reality doesn't deliver in the way that people had hoped. Yeah, and Helen, you say the government snuck the changes out. So how have they been received? Pretty badly, I imagine. Very badly. So the government has come under a lot of criticism from its own MPs as well as the opposition for not announcing these changes. And we can expect sparks to continue to fly when the changes are debated next year. So the government says that the proposed changes are better than the current system, which they are, but they are still a bit of a kick in the teeth for those at lower levels of assets. It's also worth saying these changes are set to come into effect in 20. 2023. So it's important to know that if you are currently paying social care fees, you still have over a year before these changes come in. Thank you, Helen. That's some really interesting developments to keep our eye on there. Now we're going to talk to Nathan Long, who's a senior analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been looking at more policy changes on the way for 2022, this time the ones that specifically impact investors. So Nathan, what is on the cards in policy terms? 
overall, the government's been working on rules affecting investors now that we have left the EU. And while we're going through the detail, we can see repeated clues that the rights of retail investors are being championed pretty strongly by this government. And that's both in some of the work that they're currently undertaking, but also in some of the official speeches that we've seen. So what kind of hints have they been dropping in these speeches? Well, we've seen a few exchanges in both the House of Commons and and the House of Lords, but most significantly, at a recent speech to industry, John Glenn, the city minister, listed retail investors as one of his main areas for his department to focus on, and that's alongside green finance, fintech and international trade agreements for financial services. And so tell us a bit more about some of the opportunities that you think are in store for next year, particularly uh, for retail investors. Perhaps they'll get a chance to have a bigger slice of the pie when it comes to companies listing or raising capital on the stock markets? Yeah, absolutely, Susanna. So like in a whole host of other areas, the government's looking to tidy up some of the rules that bring in complexity for investors. And they're currently looking at changing the rules to enable everyday shareholders to take part when a company looks to raise extra capital. At the moment, it's actually easier for these firms to raise new funds from institutional investors so like banks and fund managers, rather than to include ordinary people who already hold the shares. This means watering down of their holdings. And we think this is wrong. So we've pushed to get this amended. The government's also supportive of retail investors being able to access Rishi Sunak's new long-term asset funds, which are are being designed to allow investment into otherwise hard-to-access areas, so the likes of private equity, venture capital and infrastructure. We don't expect these kind of higher-risk opportunities to be the mainstay of people's portfolios, but small-sized allocations make sense for some more adventurous investors. And this is a developing area, so we're definitely expecting to see more of this in the coming year. I guess more broadly, we've been championing the the rights of retail investors where we have the opportunity to. In fact, our chief executive, Chris Hill, wrote a joint letter alongside some other platform bosses to encourage firms that are considering listing on the stock market to offer the opportunity to retail investors as well. For the three years leading up to that, actually only 7% of the new listings have been made available to regular investors. And we just feel that the opportunity to invest should be made available so that people can take advantage if they want to. We're also seeing a commitment to improve the way pension schemes help people receive information and get help when they get close to retirement. So I think that's just further recognition that we've all got personal responsibility for having enough money when we get to that time when we finish work. That is a really stark statistic that you quoted there, 7% of new listings only 7% have been made available to regular investors. But it does seem as though there are some positive signs. So what are you most excited by? Because you're in this day in, day out. Yeah, that's right. Well, the thing that I'm really excited by, and I think the real opportunity lies in how the government chooses to tackle the question of how much help firms like Hargreaves Lansdowne can give before what we say constitutes formal financial advice. Now, this probably seems illogical to listeners who, when they call us up or they look online, are just looking for help and a bit of steer as to how to approach things. But behind the scenes, this causes firms huge problems and limits how helpful they can be. So if these rules change, we'd hope to be able to provide more helpful, tailored content to our clients. But of course, the regulator is grappling with how they allow this to happen in a responsible way, without inadvertently creating risks for consumers along the way. We'd like to be able to do more to highlight where people hold expensive tracker funds, perhaps where they could benefit from greater diversification, and where they may have a very high or very low risk portfolio. But we bump up against the rules quite quickly. 
So Nathan, I can't let you go without asking about the budget. So the budget that's coming in spring next year, will the Chancellor finally reform pensions tax relief this time round? That's quite a question to finish on. Um, look, I think the, the way to think this through, if you're a higher rate taxpayer, things probably aren't going to get more generous, more attractive for you. And that's why our view is that it makes sense to continue to take advantage of those tax wrappers like pensions and ISAs to shelter you from tax. Of course, the benefits of those will depend on each person's individual circumstances. I think that reform a pension tax relief system could be good if it created stronger incentives to save. But I just don't think that's on the table because I think any changes that would be made would actually just water down what's already there. So sticking my neck on the line, I don't think they'll make any changes because it's fraught with difficulty and I think it's just too close to the next general election. But there's always that nagging doubt about the need to pay for the cost of COVID that I just don't think will go away. Those nagging doubts are likely to hang around as we um, look at how we pay back what we had to spend to survive through the pandemic. OK, Nathan, thank you so much. I'm sure we can look forward to the usual budget speculation regardless. So we're now going to turn our attention to investments themselves. And Sophie Lundjates, our senior equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, has been putting together a handful of shares to watch. Yes, every year we put together a five shares to watch list. And as I was saying earlier, looking to 2022 was a a bit different, um, certainly because we're in a situation where we are seeing signs of recovery and normal life coming back. But at the same time, there is loads of uncertainty still lingering, especially with news of the new variants. You know, that's not a situation that's getting better at the moment. With that in mind, the first name on the list is Anglo-American. Miners in general tend to be worth attention when inflation is running high. Um, and that's because instead of their input costs soaring, it's actually the goods that they are digging out the ground and selling that can then be sold at a higher price. So obviously the dynamic is kind of switched on its on its head. Um, so rather than being a challenge, it's more of a benefit. So if commodity prices do stay elevated into next year, this could have obvious benefits. Anglo in, in particular as well has, has a really diversified portfolio. And, and what I mean by that is simply that it's not reliant on one material or, or metal. So that can help smooth the journey in tougher times. You know, if, if the price of one commodity drops, there, there are others to help pick up some of that slack. The thing to, to keep in mind with all mining stocks, though, is that they are cyclical. And all that means really is that when economies run hot, the demand for the commodities that these companies are producing and, and taking out the ground ramp up. It takes a lot of iron ore to build a skyscraper, is this the way that I would always paint that picture. But as we know, what goes up can come down. So the fortunes of these companies kind of follow the, the economy more broadly. So if the economy in general is slumping, so tend to mining stocks. And we've actually already seen iron ore prices return to pre-pandemic levels recently, which is, you know, that's that's manageable. But in times of a severe downturn, the high fixed costs that miners face mean profits can fall faster than than revenues. So that is something to keep in mind. So that's miners. What about financials, banking stocks in particular? Yes, absolutely. We're we're feeling positive about some financials. And in particular, we've got a good feeling about Lloyd's Banking Group, you know, UK staple. Interest rates are expected to rise in the coming months um, and and higher rates benefit banks because they earn money by lending it out at higher rates than they pay on deposits. And this is more so of a dynamic that we're interested in with Lloyds because Lloyds is more exposed to traditional lending compared to other banks. So I think I spoke about that a bit actually on on the podcast a few weeks ago. 
And ultimately that expectation, so the expectation that rates are going to rise, um, helps underpin an, an attractive dividend at Lloyd's, um, although obviously no, no dividend is, is ever guaranteed. But what I will say is that the flip side to kind of the excitement perhaps around an interest rate rise and what that would mean for Lloyd's is that if interest rates do stay low or they don't rise as much of, as expected, Lloyd's will kind of struggle to, to really meaningfully improve profits. OK, so that's Lloyd's or one to watch. What about other sectors? We've approached the interest in tech a bit differently this year um, and we're actually putting forward Polar Capital Holdings um, as an alternative for the tech balls out there. Polar Capital is a fund management group and it's listed on the alternative investment market also known as AIM so not the main kind of faction of the LSE and as of the end of September this year the group had 23.4 billion of assets under management. It's certainly not small fry, but it's at the smaller end of the market and it's focused mostly on technology and healthcare. We're particularly happy about its kind of healthy operating margins and essentially we see Polar Capital as a way to participate in the tech boom um, while reducing some of the stock specific risks. That said, Polar's heavy reliance on the technology sector and the fact that um, the way that it's structured means it's more of a kind of a leveraged play on technology means that a change of sentiment towards tech or, or sharply rising interest rates would be very painful. As far as healthcare is concerned, are there any stocks which are worth watching? So it's not surprising, given, given the year we've had, or the 18 months that we've had, that we've put a healthcare focus name on the list. Smith & Nephew is what, is what we've gone for there. It's one of those companies that you've probably never heard of, but you may well have come across it, or you certainly know someone that's come across its, its products and services. It's a, it's a medical device maker, actually, with the potential to mount what we think is an impressive recovery in, in the year ahead. And it operates through three main segments. So you've got orthopaedics, that's offering hip and knee replacements, sports medicine, which is a soft tissue repair business, or rather kind of offering the goods that help with those kind of surgeries and injury management. And then there's wound management, which provides materials to manage injuries and, and prevent infection, bandages and the like. Now, all three of these segments were stifled by the pandemic, because if you think about it, those kinds of surgeries and treatments are elective, you know, they're non-emergency. So they were really kind of cut back during the pandemic. We're starting now to see that that trend is reversing and we don't see that demand for those kinds of things is ever going to go away, particularly when you look at ageing populations, things like hip and knee replacements. But the one thing I am mindful of going forward with Smith & Nephew and kind of the biggest challenge I would say would be those ongoing supply chain issues that, that are well publicised. Um, and that is probably the biggest hurdle to clear in the coming months for these ones. OK, I count four so far. So what is the fifth idea, Sophie? Yes, last but not least at all is uh, Tate & Lyle. So Tate & Lyle is famous for golden syrup, sugar and treacle, but it doesn't actually own those brands anymore. Instead, it's focused on ingredients like sweeteners and thickeners, as well as some larger bulk commodity businesses. And the reason I think this could be an interesting one to watch is because the world is becoming more health focused. It's trying to cut down on pure sugar. So really as a, as a kind of a macro bigger trend, I think that that is an interesting area to be in but also more on the operational side Tate and Lyle is shifting less profitable areas of the business which is making it more focused and more streamlined so that really looking at it from the analytical point of view is, is something that we're very positive about. I should flag this is definitely more of a recovery story which always carries a little bit more risk. 
Thank you, Sophie. There's plenty of interesting food for thought there. Oh, food for thought. See what, see what, sorry, terrible pun. Had to do it. Of course, I should add that nothing in this podcast is personal advice. So you should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value, so you could get back less than you invest. This isn't advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment, and no view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment, and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment. Investing in individual companies is high risk, and any investment should be made as part of our diversified portfolio. So now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, who's our Head of Investment Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Emma, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Sarah. So which funds could investors consider for their portfolios in 2022? So let's start with income, because it is regularly top of our clients' wish lists. And with inflation running high at the moment, dividends are an important tool in anyone's armoury. Companies slashed payouts last year as they were hit by lockdown restrictions, but global dividends in 2021 are expected to exceed pre-pandemic levels, though of course there are no guarantees. One of our preferred picks in the global equity income space is Artemis Global Income, which is managed by the talented Jakob de Tuschlek, who featured on this very podcast earlier in the series. He looks for companies across the world that he thinks are out of favour or overlooked by other investors. So at the moment, this includes companies in the US, Germany, Israel and India. And his contrarian style is known as value investing, which contrasts well with my second pick, the growth biased legal and general future world ESG developed index. As the name suggests, this tracker fund invests across developed stock markets while being mindful of ESG issues. So it has around two thirds in US based companies with the rest invested across Japan, UK and Europe. It offers exposures to sectors such as technology, pharmaceuticals and financials, which of course have all done very well in recent years, though that's no guarantee of future returns. Importantly, it won't invest in tobacco companies, coal producers, makers of controversial weapons or persistent violators of the UN Global Compact principles. So you're not forced to choose between profits and ethics for that one. What's number three? So combining the two themes, income and responsible investment, it's Troy Trojan Ethical Income. It's a really interesting offering, this one, because traditionally in the UK, if you've wanted to have dividends and dividend income, you had to sway into sin stocks. So that's oil and gas firms, miners, tobacco companies, which not only is unpalatable for some investors, but also arguably not a sustainable source of income, given the regulatory and consumer pressures on these companies. But Trojan Ethical Income, managed by Hugo Yeur, doesn't invest in companies deemed unethical, such as those with significant involvement in armaments, tobacco, pornography, fossil fuels, alcohol, gaming and high interest lending. He also conducts, on top of those screens, an environmental, social and governance analysis on each company to achieve a deeper understanding of what he considers the risks are. Where he feels improvements can be made, he'll engage with the companies and it pays a nice yield. Though, like anything in life, it's not guaranteed. And we also do need to mention that that one holds shares in HL, Harpies Lansdowne. So that's the three of them. Where to next? Next is emerging markets, always a more risky addition to a portfolio. But here we've picked an impressive fund in the sector, JP Morgan Emerging Markets. Managers Leon Endelman and Austin Foray look for quality companies with little or no debt and good cash flows, which we think is a sensible process for markets such as India, China, Taiwan and Brazil, where this fund is invested. And so number five, where are we going for that one? 
We try to give you a bit of everything with our selections. Uh, we've gone across the globe and we've talked about a range of investment styles, as any well-diversified portfolio should have. And if you want a fund that does a mixture of all of that, there's good old Perford Global Total Return to complete the pack. This fund is never going to shoot the lights out and in rising markets you're bound to be disappointed but if you back the tortoise rather than the hare and capital preservation is your preferred mantra then it's a goodie. The team aim not to lose money and beat inflation without much volatility. Given the last couple of weeks that sounds appealing (laughs) though of course like any investment its value will rise and fall and you could get back less than you invest. It does indeed Emma thank you so much. I should also add that investing in these funds isn't right for everyone, so you should only invest if the fund's objectives are aligned with yours and you specifically need this type of investment. You need to get to grips with the specific risks of a fund before you invest and make sure any new investment forms part of our diversified portfolio. You can find out more about these funds, their charges, risks and key information documents on our website. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And this time, Susanna tells me she's been trawling some of the more unusual investment stories of the past 12 months. I certainly have. I thought we'd end with a look back at some truly weird stories. So, in November, a well-known crypto trader called Mr Gox died. But what was unusual about Mr Gox, Sarah? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Is it, is, it, is it one of those pseudonyms for somebody who's created a cryptocurrency? Well, it does actually sound, I think, like a Dr. Zeus character. But actually, believe it or not, he was a hamster with 18,000 Twitter followers. So a couple of friends in Germany decided to test the randomness of success in trading crypto. So they set up his cage so that when he ran on his wheel, it would select which coin he wanted to trade. And then he had two tunnels on the floor, one wide up to sell when he ran through it and one wired up to buy so whichever tunnel he ran through he would determine the trade between when he started trading in june and when he died his portfolio was up by more than a fifth so there we are <laughs> it just maybe it will end up like a, a modern day dr zeus story at some point who knows it certainly goes to show how completely random some of these trading decisions can be so sarah next one in its full year results this year which company announced sales of just under $366 billion, which is more than the GDP of Norway. Well, the easiest answer is Apple. Is it Apple? Yes, you're right. I've got to give you that one. That's more than twice as much as Microsoft, which still had full year revenues, which are over a billion dollars more than the GDP of Qatar. There we are. Finally, GameStop has been hitting the headlines this year, but when it started selling Atari games in 1984, it had a major financial backer who later went into politics. Who was it? Give us a clue. Go on. Okay, well, he has run for president against both George W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Oh, I was going to guess Bill Clinton. You know, that was a long time ago. My politics is really rusty. Okay, I'll let you out of your misery. He's the most successful independent candidate to have run in recent presidential elections. It is Ross Perot, and he has a bit of a history of funding tech companies too. You know, back when Steve Jobs was forced out of Apple in the 1980s, Ross Perot actually backed his startup. Next. There we are. So all roads seem to lead back to Apple. At least this year they do anyway. Talking about apples, I'm actually going to go back and finish off some of those satsumas. We have had so many of them over the Christmas period. (laughs) And I'm off to practice not worrying about things. 
But before we go, we need to remind you that this was recorded on 6th of December and all information was correct at the time of recording. This hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Helen, Nathan, Sophie, Emma and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back in 2022. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye and Happy New Year.